Hey, everybody. Good to see you. So I, I, uh, I worked as a um, psychiatric nurse in community mental health back in the 19, 1970s. Um, I was 10 years old at the time, quite advanced for my age, got a nursing degree. And uh, I look back at that time, the things that we didn't know in the, in the mental health field are kind of staggering. PTSD went completely undiagnosed. Um, Vietnam vets had to organize to get it recognized, I think, in 1980. Uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, now it's just like one of the most effective treatments for anxiety, uh, was just getting started. Brain science was in its complete in infancy. Um, but today, one of the most fruitful approaches, um, theoretical approaches informing therapy is called attachment theory. Uh, it's developed by John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth. I like attachment theory because it applies to cats and dogs and animals and people uh, equally, and you can just observe it in nature. Um, it's, it's based on uh, observations of early childhood. Um, young children with a secure bond to a caregiver who is reasonably available and responsive will become distressed when the caregiver leaves and then readily reassured when reunited with the caregiver. And as this bond is strengthened over time, the child can be separated for longer periods and be just fine with periodic check-ins. Uh, parents and caregivers, you know, have observed this for forever. But it turns out to be a really key part of our, of our psychological health. Uh, throughout life, having a secure home base to return to when you're stressed is what helps us to venture out into the world, take risks, and so on. Um, you know, the, the analogy they make in attachment theory is, is it, it, your, your secure relationships are uh, like your home base for, uh, or your base camp for mountain climbers. If you have a well-provisioned base camp, you're able to climb higher up the mountain. Of course, we undergo uh, attachment losses and injuries. We, we move away from a support system. We lose important relationships. Sometimes a previous place of safety and refuge turns toxic for us. That's, that's called attachment injury. So we, we can trace all these attachment uh, issues in the life of Jesus. The gospel is just telling quite a, quite a fascinating attachment story. Um, our reading from Luke 2 that Mary did today has Jesus at the age of 12. Um, I think it's the only childhood episode in all of the Gospels. Gospel of St. of Thomas has several more, but um, in the canonical Gospels, just here in Luke chapter 2, we have this uh, cool story where Jesus is conversing with the elders in the temple courts. He's part of this extended family of travelers in for the high holy days. And the group has, has begun their trek back to Nazareth, his home t uh, village, without him. It's like all the people looking out for him think he must be with someone else, which you know could easily happen in these uh, communal village groups, when in fact he, he was staying behind. The fact that Jesus at age 12 was so at ease being away from his family, uh, alone in the big city, was an indication of his secure attachment to them. So when his parents notice he's not with them, they rush back to Jerusalem to find him in the temple. They're beside themselves. How could you do this to us? He could have said, I credit your good parenting and my secure attachment. Uh, but he didn't. So 
as a result, however, or as a as an adult, I should say, uh, Jesus experienced lots of actual painful disruptions from his secure attachment to parents, uh, to family, to village, to synagogue, and to trusted elders in his um, in his community. So, as early as the uh, as the Gospel of Mark, chapter two, we learn of a painful. Um, no, I think it's chapter three actually. We learn of a painful rupture in Jesus' nuclear family. His mother and brothers oppose what he's doing, and they try to stop it. So he says to his followers when this uh, manifests, this rupture, he says, who are my brother and my mother and my sisters? Anyone who does the will of God, and he was gesturing to the people around him at the time. So this breach when his with his family came when the support of a family was really sorely needed by Jesus. He was becoming a prominent figure in Israel. Opposition from important power centers, uh, mainly in Jerusalem, were beginning to pose a growing threat to his safety. Um, by the way, this family breach is repaired later in life. Um, it's in the Gospel of John uh, at the end of his life. It's another story. It's, it's also a hopeful one, the possibility of repairing these significant family breaches. But early in his public life, um, this turbulent period, his home base shifts from Nazareth to Capernaum. Um, Peter's family lived there, and that may have become a home away from home for him. But as, his, as the opposition intensifies through the story of the Gospels, Capernaum is no longer friendly territory. So it's like, you know, his, his village uh, safe place is disrupted in Nazareth. He transitions to Capernaum, and then opposition uh, lodges in Capernaum, and that's no longer the same kind of uh, home base that it was before. While well, he's traveling about doing his teaching and, his, and being a public figure in, in Israel. He finds a new home away from home in Bethany, a village uh, just outside of Jerusalem. Um, one particular uh, set of relationships seems to be really important to Jesus. The, the closest we have, I think, of, of Jesus having, having friends, like adult friends. And, and that's a relationship with uh, two sisters, Martha and Mary. A lot of different stories about Martha and Mary and Jesus in the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And then um, John's Gospel adds uh, their, their brother, probably a younger brother, Lazarus. And the peculiar thing is all of them are unmarried adults, which was unusual in that uh, cultural context. Uh, it was a, a family made up of three single adults. So there are, are some intriguing uh, possibilities about who they might have been thanks to the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls in the 1940s. This is like a treasure trove of texts from a Jewish sect headquartered near the Dead Sea in Qumran. It was a group called the Essenes. Little was known about them before the, the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. I think our, our oldest texts of the Hebrew Bible are from the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were like earlier by, by a couple thousand years at the time that they were discovered. So like Jesus, the Essenes had a sharp dispute with the temple authorities. Um, in addition to their Qumran base, though, the Essenes had homes and villages throughout Israel, little, little groups of people who were Essenes living among other Israelites in, in these small towns and villages. And Bethany 
was one of those like Essene strongholds, it seems. Um, the, the Essenes also elevated the value of foregoing marriage. Uh, Jesus was probably unmarried, as were Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. So in Bethany, there was also, uh, where there was this Essene out, outpost, um, Jesus probably wasn't an Essene, but Mary, Martha, and Lazarus might have been. Um, another little intriguing fact to throw into the mix is that Bethany means house of misery. And there's evidence in the Dead Sea Scrolls, again, that Bethany was the site of a leper colony run by Essenes. So it was a refuge for those with skin diseases needing special cares, even like a hospice aspect to it. So Jesus, we know, enjoyed the greatest support among marginalized people, though it's worth remembering that in the earliest uh, Jerusalem church, there were thousands of Pharisees who continued to be Pharisees. So it was, it was complicated. Still, he was known as the friend of sinners, which is a designation that probably referred to social status more than morality, according to New Testament scholar Greg Carey. So Jerusalem during the festivals is crawling with Roman troops uh, who are nervous about messianic uh, movements and leaders. And Bethany is this nearby village with these two sisters and their brother, perhaps serving in this leper colony. And it's a home away from home for Jesus, it seems. Um, so Jesus has a, a powerful circumstantial need and also a capacity to transition from one place of secure attachment in his life to another. And his public ministry is a very turbulent time for attachment. During this dicey period in the Gospels, it's, it's like he's crossing a raging stream with some, I don't know, dangerous snakes in it or critters, and he's finding one rock to hop to, then another, each is a place of secure attachment, helping him make his way across the stream. And at the same time, he's forming a community of people who can become a refuge for each other. There was so many displaced people in Israel at the time. So I really admire this capacity in Jesus um, to navigate really challenging attachment challenges. Um, so many people I know um, have done this. I, I think of my stepdaughter, Oceana, um, I don't know if you know her story, she gave me um, permission to share it and she shares it pretty openly. But Oceana was born in uh, Hunan province in China to biological parents who couldn't for unknown reasons care for her. And she was anonymously dropped off in a hospital lobby at like three months, you know, estimate or estimated age at the time. Actually, it was nine months, uh, uh, not three months. And she was cared for in an orphanage until nearly the age of three, when she is, was adopted by Julia and Richard. So she gains a much older brother, Andrew, from Richard's first marriage. Um, St. Clair's Episcopal Church, one of the host um, congregations for when we're meeting in person in Ann Arbor becomes her village uh, for many years. Now, then her father dies when she's a pre-adolescent. It's a really tough time to lose a parent. 
but she has four godparents, apparently Episcopal priests. Her mother by this time is an Episcopal priest. They go wild appointing godparents for, <laughs> for their kids. I think, Oce I think Oceania has five godparents, one of whom is, is a very significant father uh, figure to her. His name is Nino. And then in 2014, I joined the family as like instant stepdad, which of course takes a little while to, for us to negotiate, uh, to find our way into that um, relationship. So none of these adjustments are easy, but Oceana has, this, has developed this capacity to form secure attachments with different people in her life. Um, she talks to her brother Andrew and his husband Franco every week. They live in England. Um, she wants to do grad school on the other side of the Atlantic uh, where, they, where they live and connect with them. Uh, and now she even tells me stuff that she doesn't tell her mom, which I think is an indication that I have truly arrived as a, as a stepdad. The other day I said to Julia, yeah, Oceana just uh, shared something with me that she hasn't shared with you not to worry everything's under control so <laughs> don't worry she talks a lot to her mom so <laughs> uh, no need to be threatened there julia <laughs> so how do people do this how do people navigate these incredible adjustments well well they just they do jesus did i don't know whether this is the chicken or the egg but in his adult years um, those years of secure attachment injuries and finding new sources of secure attachment, Jesus leans into the Jewish mystical tradition in which God is understood and experienced as the source of one's ultimate safety, as a refuge, in particular uh, experienced as a, a loving, um, available parent. Um, not an answer machine that solves all, all of one's problems, but a home base, a refuge. Jesus' um, favorite word, or maybe distinctive is a better term, his distinctive word for God in this mode is the Aramaic term Abba, meaning dear father. And he develops a strong identification with the Hebraic and Near Eastern uh, feminine experience of the divine named wisdom or Sophia in the Greek. One like a mother hen who gathers her chicks under her wings. That's one of his images for this figure and his identification with her. Um, he offers, in other words, like an attachment bond spirituality to his followers. When you pray, say, our Father in heaven um, is an example of that. It's language at that time that hadn't yet been trivialized by the Christian marketing apparatus in recent years. So we always have to kind of like see our way through all those horrible associations um, with the treasures that are hidden in the field. Psalm 131 is an example of this spirituality and I'm going to paste it on the screen in the chat, just like Emily does when she's speaking. We'll watch people watch this. This is a first for me. I'm very excited. Oh God, it happened. It worked. It's amazing. You can teach an old dog new tricks. I'm so happy with myself. So um, this this psalm, uh, this is the Robert Alter translation. Lord, my heart has not been haughty, nor have my eyes looked too high. 
but I have calmed and contented myself like a weaned babe on its mother, like a weaned babe I am with myself. O Israel, trust in the Lord, now and forever. So a weaned child is one who is just uh, venturing out, moving away from the primary caregiver into the world, and then coming back to base camp as needed for reassurance, and then back out again. Now Jesus, it's, it's a classic attachment theory example. Jesus leans into this spirituality. It, it, it's, it's his secret superpower. The secure attachments he did experience with others allows him to, it, it forges something in him, like a, a security, a confidence, that allows him to venture into the world, take risks, get roughed up, bounce back, develop resilience. We don't have res resilience. We develop resilience on the fly and keep going. But all along, he's also nurturing his secure attachment to God, which becomes for him a kind of internal baseline of security that sees him through so many um, rough patches. The thing about a secure attachment, um, whether to a parent, a sibling, a spouse, a community, a village, a group, to God, or whatever it is we cobble together through the vicissitudes of life. I'm starting to sound like Moira Rose here, um, been binging, you know. These secure attachments, human, divine, or a combination, they form as a kind of nest or home base that we carry inside of us. In other words, they change our our insides as we venture out like a child with a secure attachment to a caregiver can wander off and carry that security with them it's it's like a superpower by the way i had this experience after getting uh, vaccinated um and it was like wow this is my new superpower i and um i was just watching a nova um special on the uh, uh polio uh epidemic. I, I grew up in the 50s, and we all grew up under the scary shadow of the polio epidemic. I, I think they had surveys that said the, the number one fear in that time period was of like a, a, a nuclear war breaking out in 1962. It was the, you know, the um, Cuban missile crisis. Kids in schools were having drills to you know, go, go under their desks in case there was a nuclear attack. We all kind of worried about that as kids. The second most significant worry in that era was of uh, the polio epidemic. And there was no vaccine to it. And it was developed by Jonas uh, Salk, who started off at the University of Michigan, but developed a vaccine at University of Pittsburgh. Um, and it was a new technology for vaccines, uh, uh, a uh, a dead virus vaccine instead of a live virus vaccine. And I can remember, I was a little kid, I can remember vaccination day, where like it was finally available. It was like a festival. Like people were, were like walking in family groups to the local school and getting vaccinated. And, and uh, it was just such a sense of relief and freedom. The country was like pretty united in, in, uh, at that time on this matter. And we, we all knew people who were affected by polio. Um, we, we knew kids who wore braces. You know, FDR had, uh, had polio and was in a wheelchair. It was mainly something that affected kids, though, rather than adults. 
Um, there would be times during the summer when public schools, um, w w uh, public pools were shut down and people didn't have their own swimming pools. They went to public pools, but they were shut down. Kids had to take naps every day, long be beyond the time uh, kids were normally taking naps to like protect themselves from, from getting polio. Um, and, you know, not to compare the two, um, at its height, the year I was born, 1952, there were 3,000 deaths a year to polio. Last year, we had periods when there were that many COVID deaths a day. So these were two very different pandemics, but um, the polio one was, uh, was the epidemic of my, of my childhood. And getting that vaccine was just like this relief. It was like this superpower that you carry with you where ever you are and you you remind yourself oh I'm, I'm so much safer than i than i used to be so i'm dig digressing a little bit um sometimes we need a superpower um, we don't outgrow the power of our secure attachments even after we lose a parent or a spouse say or an important figure in our lives or a group or we move away from our support system um you know, I think it was in the third wave of COVID. I was really getting worn out, uh, running out of steam. You know, are we ever going to get out of this? Uh, you know, I'm, I'm not a spring chicken. I don't have like, you know, but the clock is ticking for, you know, quality years left here. And I noticed myself uh, during that third wave, um, finding, framing, and displaying pictures of my mother. Uh, my mother died in 1984. Um, that for me was like my secure attachment parent, and I know it's not for everyone. Um, I stumbled across a watercolor that my sister did as a kid of our dog, Duchess, a golden retriever. And I realized that dog was really an important part of my uh, secure attachment as a kid. That dog never had a, gr a crossword for me. Uh, that dog thought I was awesome all the time. And anytime I was willing to pay attention to that dog, she was just happy for it and return the favor. So I, I, I was really, I think, leaning into whatever secure attachments I had, and I was drawing on them as a superpower. And I was realizing that even though they were forged in the past, and my mother was long gone, my dog was long gone, they were, that was still part of me, that was like inside of me. And whatever that is, that's what God and the Jesus vision of God can be for us, can be a part of the, the nest or the base camp that we carry around within us inside. I use that as a kind of um, like discernment guide to identify divine influence on me or in me. Like, you know, we have all these different impressions and feelings or whatever. And what are the ones that we can identify with God. Well, I use that as a kind of discernment guide to identify divine influence. Whatever that feeling of secure attachment is, however it has shown up in our lives, whatever at whatever time in our lives, that's the feeling that I associate with divine influence. For me, it's like a handy-dandy discernment tool. It's a, like a divine influence meter. So we can think of this um, time together that we spend on Sunday morning as a place to nurture attachment bonds. Uh, rituals are an ancient way of doing this. And in our mode on, on Zoom, we've been relying more on rituals for our, our time together. 
Our candle lighting is a ritual that keeps our hearts soft toward the suffering in our world, uh, which over time helps us to keep our hearts soft toward our own suffering. You know, um, I was talking with someone who said, uh, I think it was Dave Nelson, love your neighbor as yourself also works in reverse. Love yourself as your neighbor. So when we practice love of neighbor, we're kind of teaching ourselves how to love ourselves. It comes back to us in that form. The naming of loved ones for the uh, prayer for loved ones that we do um, as part of our you know, lead up to communion reminds us that we all have loved ones and it softens our heart toward one another to remember that everyone here has loved ones who are as precious to them as our loved ones are precious to us. And then communion, you know, the blessing, the wine, breaking the bread or their equivalents and eating them signifies the possibility of friendship, of kinship with God. And this is a, the kind of kinship that bonds us also to each other and to the world. So um, I'm done. Emily, why don't you take over? <laughs>